Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Michael K. Williams, the actor, died earlier this month. He was 54. To the many of us who were fans of his work, the news was quite a gut punch. A headline or a push notification or a text from a friend on an otherwise quiet Labor Day. That's in part because of how Williams' work has affected us. He was known for playing Omar Little on The Wire. Omar was, and I don't think this is controversial to say, easily the best character on one of the best TV shows of all time. Omar was a stick-up man. He lived both outside the law and under constant threat of retaliation from the drug dealers he robbed. He took his grandma to church. He was deeply in love with his boyfriend, Brandon, who was an iconic character. But Michael K. Williams added something unique to the role. In the midst of a stick-up, he carried himself with a macho swagger, a crooked smile, and a killer one-liner. And in the next scene, it all falls apart. He'd be tender, vulnerable. He felt his pain. Then there's Michael's personal story. He began his career in entertainment in fits and starts. First, he was a dancer in New York, then an actor with a handful of walk-on credits. By the time he auditioned for The Wire, he was in his mid-30s. He'd lived a whole life. He didn't go to acting school. He didn't come from money. Williams went on to more roles, of course. He played Chalky White on Boardwalk Empire. He had small but memorable parts in movies like The Road, Inherent Vice, 12 Years a Slave, among others. When I talked to him in 2016, he was starring in a really good show called Hap and Leonard. He played Leonard, a Vietnam vet turned private investigator. The show aired for three seasons on the Sundance channel, if you want to check it out. When Michael K. Williams died earlier this month, he was in the middle of an impressive and beautiful acting career. There's never been anyone like Williams on screen, and there never will be again. As I said, I got to talk to him in 2016. When we heard the news about Williams' passing, we went into the archives to listen back to our conversation. What you're about to hear is a mix of some stuff we've played already and a lot of stuff that we haven't. At some points in the interview, you'll notice that he sounds like he's coming through a telephone. That's because he is. When we talked with Michael, he was using a studio in New York. We weren't able to recover all of Michael's original studio recording, but we had his phone audio as a backup. So let's get into it. My interview with the late Michael K. Williams. Michael K. Williams, welcome to Bullseye. Thanks, man. Thank you. You were you were uh, you were a club kid when you were a kid, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was I was the one with the loud floral shirt on and you know the 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 high top fade and you know he wore his suspenders backwards with these enormously enormously gaudy looking shoes. I, I was that dude. <laughs> when did you start going to clubs? How old were you? Oh, I was um way underage, man. Um, my first like adult club I went to, I had to be somewhere around sixteen years old. What kind of music were you dancing to? I grew up liking, like, you know, music to dance to. You know, um, I liked the Bee Gees. I loved the Jackson, Jackson 5. I, I grew up with that that Philly sound, that that gambling huff, that hustle music, you know, disco, whatever you want to call it. You know, I call it that feel-good music. 
you know, love is the message. And so I, I always gravitated towards upbeat tempo, up-tempo beats and, and, you know, huge lyrics. And, you know, that kind of migrated to what we now know as house music and, you know, to, and to my knowledge. So I kind of went that way, you know. That was my thing. That's, that's why I, I homed in on my, my dance skills, actually. When you were like a teenager and in your early 20s, like how many nights a week were you going out? New York is always is and always has been a weekday kind uh, of city. So, I mean, like Tuesdays, Thursdays, you know, you might find a hot spot on a Monday, you know, a Sunday. But like Friday and Saturday, we usually gave that to the, you know, as what we refer to as the bridge and tunnelers. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't want to deal with that Jersey City nonsense. Yeah, you know, <laughs> shout out to Jersey, Newark. <laughs> When did you think that, you know, dancing in a club could be more than just a thing you did a few nights a week for fun and could actually be a job? Well, I think you're the first person that ever asked me that. One night there was a um, this, uh, Heather Hunter, uh, the ex-porn star. She's a very good friend of mine. But when I first met her, she was um, branching out into doing music. And she had a she had a gig at this club in New York called the Sound Factory Bar, and in the eleventh hour, her dancers backed out, and she was contracted, you know, to have us be on stage a certain amount of time with a certain you know level of stage show stage performance, and she was freaking out. And she and I had a um, a mutual friend in common. He called me, and she called him. He called me, and uh, I was like, wait a minute. Heather Hunter, the legendary porn star, wants wants to get get me in my favorite club for free. Let me do what I love to do the most on a stage where I don't have to worry about nobody getting in my way, and I'm getting paid. I'm like, where do I sign up? And uh, that's that was really after that. I was I was I was I got bit. I got bit by the bug. I loved it. Loved being on stage. How old were you? I mean, what are we talking about? Um, 26, 20, 25. Well, I got cut on my 25th birthday, and this was definitely after that. So I would have to be somewhere between 26, 27. I, I want to play, um, uh, I want to play a song that came out when you were right around that age. And, and maybe you can tell me a little bit about what you remember about it and that time. This is, uh, Kim Sims and Too Blind to See It. Wow. So tell me about that, Michael. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Excuse me. I was, I mean, uh, man, excuse me. That, um, I saw him, man. That, that was the, that was the first time that, you know, my, like my dream came true. You know what I mean? Like when, when Kim hired me to be a dancer, I was homeless. You know what I mean? I remember when I got the call. I was being kicked out 
So while I was staying, they wanted me to leave. And I got the call that she wanted me to dance for. And I went to where I was staying. I was packing up my stuff. And I turned on the TV. And I remember that was the same night that Mike Jackson, he released a video for him. Remember the time. You know what I mean? And he had got all the dancers from New York. And I remember seeing, like, Leslie, Big Les, Leslie Siegel, and and and, and, and Josie, and, and Stretch, and, and all these 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 young brothers and sisters that I looked up to and I aspired to be like they was working with Michael Jackson and I was like one day I'm gonna be there you know what I'm saying I'm sorry it's just I ain't I haven't heard that song in a while just brought back a lot of memories that's all pardon me not at all was that the was that the first uh, that was my first dance job that's the first time that's the first time anybody ever hired me to do what I'm doing now was Kim Sims that was my first job doing anything in this business. You know what I mean? Anything. You know what I mean? So I'm here today on the strength of that that one song. I mean, shout out to Kim Sims, man. How'd you get the job? You know what I mean? She, through a mutual friend. She had a dancer who was already um, her choreographer at the time, his brother from Brooklyn named, named Chad Brown. He was already working with her, right? And, um, he had kind of recruited me to be like a like a standby, if you will, you know, like like a for for case him or his other dancer who he was take, taking out on the road to to do her shows, and um, I met her through him. So, but I was the standby, the backup, the, you know, the standby, you know, case one of them couldn't make this show. So for like a couple of months, I was just learning her routines. You know, he was teaching me the routines and you know just getting me ready in, c- in case we had to make the call. I could just go and that was she you know she she um she gave me my shot man the call came Chad couldn't make a show and he put me on you know I was up gave him my shot and uh she ended up just keeping me man when that happened did you feel like uh did you feel like a professional yeah you're damn right I did I felt like a like a grown up I felt like you know I felt like damn it's really possible to get paid doing something you love, you know, that wasn't a job. That was the, that was my first glimpse into my career. You know, who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Me from Brooklyn, from Flatbush, with a career. <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't happen often. You had done some kind of classic New York actor work um, earlier in your career, like being on Law and Order and stuff, but. From what I've heard, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you weren't really working when you went out for Omar. Um, is that true? Yes, sir. Um, after, you know, um, when I was making the transition from dancing to acting, you know, I, I always, you know, again, I tell you, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. I didn't get very far in school. I was never, I was never meant, I don't, I don't believe that I was meant for classroom settings. I was always an in-the-field kind of guy. So, um, you know, while everybody was in the basement, we were shooting all these music videos in New York City, and I was trying to get, you know, get, up, get on as a dancer. I would, um, when everybody was in the basement, you know, laughing, talking, whatever, playing spades, I would just go and sit in the corner on the set and watch and listen. And that's how I got to learn how the set runs. You know, so, um, um, damn it, what was your question again? <laughs> My question was, you weren't you weren't working much as an actor when right, got you, got you, right, yeah. So you know, so so 
after a while, I said, you know, Mike, you know, you got to, you know, birds of a feather flock together. So I also started to make my transition with people who I surrounded myself with. And I started hanging around other people who were aspiring actors. And I started hearing things like, you know, you know, are you got to you get your sad card yet? You know, um, are you going to L.A. for pilot season and things like I would hear conversations like that as opposed to, you know, what who 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 has auditions for background dancers? I would listen to who got auditions for extra parts and things of that nature. So, um, this everything's all this pilot season, pilot season, it's pilot season, right? And um, I was like, wait a minute, you mean pilot season means you pack up, you go halfway across this country. You know, no one out there, and you go up against everyone else around the country, and that's <laughs> and hopes that you'll get. That sounds like a needle in a haystack, and and it, and it frightened me. You know, that going to LA, I said, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna wait. I says uh, at the time there was a lot of a lot of TV shows being shot in New York City. Shout out to Dick Wolf and all the Law and Orders. You had NYPD Blue. You had New York Undercover. So I was like, you know what, Mike, I got all my Frank tonight. I can make it here. I can make it anywhere. I said, if I you know, let me build my resume, the little work around town, and then you know, LA will send for me. <laughs> That's when I'll go to LA. They will send for me. I will be called and summoned to Hollywood when they when I go there. And I just kind of never went. And every time I would get close to taking my, uh, I had I had um, say, say the ball these frequent flyer miles enough to get me one way to LA. Every time I would go to book that ticket to Cali, I would book a job in New York acting. I was like, okay, that ran out around 98, 99. You know, I had had, I had been on, I had worked with uh, uh, Nicolas Cage, and that's my first time working with Marty um, Scorsese um, on Bringing Out the Dead. I had um, a guest starring role on Law and Order. We uh, reenacted the Ray Carruth story. And then, and then, dude, I was a black man that did not get killed off on The Sopranos. I I thought I thought I had arrived. You know what I mean? So I packed my bag and sat by the door. I said, oh, they're going to be calling for me in a minute, right? And then, you know, 99, I, I didn't work at all. It just, the phone went dead. Nothing happened. Um, and I got real scared and real bitter. And I can remember um, me and my mother, we was um, we went to the Bahamas. She took she took all the family to the Bahamas, where she's from, for that, um, that 2000 millennium, New Year's, whatever. And uh, we're sitting there. They dropped the ball. We toast. And you know, having drinks and whatnot, she goes, you know what, Mike, you might as well come work in the daycare this year, man. You know, I'm paying your rent, might as well earn it. I was like, gee, Ma, thanks for the vote of confidence. But um, my mom's had a um, she, my mom, thank God for her, man. Shout out to Baby P, man, Big Mama. She, she, my mother opened up a daycare in the project where we lived, and uh, I, she was able to offer me a job, so I took it, and I, I, I prided myself as a I. As her what, administrative assistant, you know, she was old school. She still had her ledger book and whatnot, and she wrote everything down. I said, Ma, listen, 2000, we got to get this computers going on in here. So I did all of that for her, and, um, you know, with, with a lot of help. And uh, we implicated a free lunch program in the, in the daycare. And I would say, all that, that took up all of 2000. It kept me, um, it kept me occupied. And for most of 2001, up until, um, Around October or so of 2001, I was sitting in my apartment and I, you know, I'll be doing the hood. You know, we put the TV on, but it's muted. You play music and then, you know, see some spades, dominoes, you know, you know, you know beer, weed, whatever going on. with chilling. Wintertime. And um, that was one of the things in my apartment, one of the nights in my crib. And um, I was there with um, Ruck, who just passed, man. Shout out to my brother, Ruck. 
boot camp, man. He was there, me and him, my cousin. And the episode that I was on, Sopranos, came on TV. So I was like, okay, there's something wrong with this picture. Um, I'm here on the television, and I'm here in the room. I said, well, what's happening here? It's like kind of like an out-of-body experience. And so I um, went to my mom. I said, look, I'm going to give this, this entertainment one more shot, right, mom? I said, don't work. Me and you, baby, we changing diapers, right? So I said, listen, she, what you need? I said, I need a loan. Give me 10 grand. She gave it to me. <laughs> Reluctantly, <laughs> but she gave it to me. And um, I put together this new, a uh, whole new reel. Because it, uh, it, was, it, it was my, um, the, re, the, the emancipation, you know what I mean? My emancipation, the comeback, you know what I mean? I'm back on the block. So I got a whole new reel, a whole new headshot. I bought a computer because back in them days it was before Apple. You had to go to the to the computer show at Queens Community College and build your computer. That's how we did it back in the day. And um, so boom, and um, I I put together this real gaudy package, and I I put the, a, a hit list of ten people who I was going to send this package to, like the real the headshot. I I went I went my homeboy his mom's worked for Tiffany's, so I went and got got all these Tiffany pens and Tiffany boxes, and I sprayed the the tissue with Tiffany cologne. It's just it's going all out. And um, I mailed it to 10 people. Um, Kidar Mac, Mac and Kidar, get his last name right now, who he's a music uh, guy. Jimmy, Jimmy Roseman, a.k.a. Jimmy Hinchman, um, um, Shaquem Kapoor, uh, Jackie Brown Carmen. These are some some of the names that's on my list. I sent them off for Christmas presents, right? I said, you know what, Mike, it's Christmas. Did it marinate? I said, watch my clock. It's right around January 10th, 14th. I should be getting some calls like, oh, my God, we want to see you. Man, here we are in March. My mom's is beating on my door. Where's my money? <laughs> like, you know, same. And, um, yeah, man, I, I, I kind of slipped into a darkness. Got a little depressed. Um, this is, you know, post. I never really dealt with the 9-11 thing. Um, I was having some stress issues with that and, you know, just being in the projects, you know, feeling, um, feeling unfulfilled. And I, I slipped into a little slight depression. And so, um, you know, that's where I was at when I got the call from Alexa Fogel. Thank God for her. She scoured the streets of New York to find me because apparently she did not see my awesome package. You know what I mean? But well, you sent it me. to Kadar Massenberg, the guy that was in Motown Records. I was desperate. You were trying James. to be the next. You were trying to be the next Erica Badu. <laughs> Erica Badu or D'Angelo, somebody come get me. But um, yeah, you know, Alexa Fogel found me. She found me in my despair and um. She asked me to come meet this guy named Omar Devon Little. It seems like it wasn't uh, it wasn't a particularly smooth journey the next five ten years of your career, though. You know, I I think I've I've been so fortunate and blessed. At the end of the day, I got nothing to complain about, nothing at all. You know, in the, in the short amount of time I've been in this business, you know, especially you know, as an actor, the amount of success I've achieved, the, the 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 level of people I've been blessed to work with and learn from, is been truly like a, a dream come true. You know, I mean, I, I got people got to remember. I only started acting. My first my first big job was The Wire. That was just two thousand uh, two thousand what two. We started. You know, I started on The Wire. You know, for I'm talking with someone who never acted before, never had any dreams to act, never went to school to act, you know, and I got given this opportunity, you know, and uh, grace of God, man, it was able to turn it into something, you know, that I could, I could really, you know, do good with. 
We've got more of my interview with Michael K. Williams, including more about his most iconic part, Omar Little. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Discover matches all the cash back you earn on your credit card at the end of your first year automatically, with no limit on how much you can earn. It's amazing because of all the places where Discover is accepted. 99% of places in the U.S. that take credit cards. So, when it comes to Discover, get used to hearing yes more often. Learn more at discover.com slash match. 2021 Nielsen Report. Limitations apply. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, we are replaying my 2016 interview with Michael K. Williams. The late actor played Omar Little on The Wire, Chalky White on Boardwalk Empire, and had so many other roles on the big and small screens. Williams died on September 6th. He was 54. Let's get back into our conversation. Did you have a point in your career where, especially working mostly as a dancer, you realized that you were going to have to figure something out because you know you started as a dancer as professionally in your mid 20s um which is already which on, is late yeah which, which is, is already right, on, on the, the old late side. side yeah <laughs> you know there's not a lot of professional there's not a lot of professional especially you know street dancers or urban dancers in the in, into their 30s you know man listen shout out to the old heads man the old school brooms still know the corners. You know what I mean? <laughs> Shout out to my old school dancers, man. My boogies. You know what I mean? But um, when I knew I had to make a uh, a shift was, you know, when I started coming onto the scene, you know, I was already, I had the scar on my face. And I went from, you know, um, Mike Williams? Who? Come on, dude with the scar on his face. Oh, yeah. You know, um... Yeah, I, I I will admit I played that I played that card for like about a whole five minutes, and that that got real old hat to me. And I said, well, if I'm getting tired of being referred to as the guy with the scar, I said it's going to be a matter of time before they start referring to me as the guy with the scar. I, I said I'm in the building, but if I want to stay in the building, I need to bring some substance to this, and um, that's when I got blessed. Um, being to be introduced to the uh, underground, off-Broadway world of New York City through my brother Ray Thomas, from, also from, again from Philly. He brought me to La Mama, and I, where I met uh, Ellen Stewart, God bless the dead, and uh, it put me in this play. And I, I, that's where I learned how to create character and layers and, you know, what, what is the method technique? What is the Meisner technique? And, you know, and then I got with my, my theater company, which I'm still with, with today, uh, Theater for a New Generation un, under Mel Williams' tutelage. When he started, when he put his hands on me, it was a wrap after that. I was going in these auditions, just knocking them down. And, uh, you know, it was that that gave me the substance and, you know, uh, to let the scar go. It's not about my scar. I'm not here because of that, you know, today. Was it scary to to be as emotionally present and open as acting requires, or was that something that came comfortably to you? Dude, you just played a friggin' a, a, a pop hop house song, and I'm, I cry like a friggin' baby just now. I think I think we know the answer to that. I'm a marshmallow here. I can't I can't run that fast. <laughs> 
you know, but um, you know, that's where my strength lies. You know, is is you know, being sensitive and vulnerable, that's who I am, you know, and um ironically, the more I am I allow myself to be that and to allow people to see that is where my strength comes from. Well, let's let's hear a clip of you playing Omar on the wire. Omar was a stick-up artist who stuck up drug dealers. Yes, sir. And uh, sort of universally some combination of respected and feared in the neighborhood in which he lived, both because he had that code of only sticking up drug dealers and because he was the only person foolish slash terrifying enough to go around sticking up drug dealers. Here he is in uh, season two of the show. Uh, testifying in court, and uh, he's just been sworn in. Get your name for the record. Omar Devone Little. Mr. Little, how old are you? About 29, they're about. And where do you live? No place in particular, ma'am. You're homeless? And the wind, so to speak. And what is your occupation? Occupation? What exactly do you do for a living, Mr. Little? I rip and run. You... I robs drug dealers. And exactly how long has this been your occupation, Mr. Little? Well, I don't know exactly. I've been to the say maybe about eight or nine years. Mr. Little, how does a man rob drug dealers for eight or nine years and live to tell about it? <sighs> Day to time, I suppose. <laughs> Shout out to David Simon, man. Nina Noble, Ed Burns. And were you? I mean, this job was so important to you because it was it was such a breakthrough. I mean, it was the difference between you working for your mom in the daycare center changing diapers and you being a real professional actor making a living from being on screen. That must have really upped the stakes, you know, compared to. Uh, some of the acting vets who who could have felt confident that this would just lead to their next thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, I came on uh, The Wire extremely excited and very, very uh, passionate to do a, do the best job that I can possibly do. And um, I was just so in awe of the people they had already had on the cast, you know, starting first with you know, Wendell Pierce and Sonya Song. You know, I had just... Seeing, I was I was like obsessed with her performance opposite Saul Williams with, in this movie called Slam, you know. So see her and you know Wood Harris. I was like, oh my god, you know what I mean? I, I, you know, like oh. So I, I I bought my A game, my A plus game actually, and um, I I dug as hard as I could to find Omar, and I just I just like I never stopped, like you know, going deeper with him. It was always. I can go deeper. What, what what other nuances can I find? What other layers can I can I add on? You know, but always I just attacked I attacked that like a dog that hadn't been fed in so long. You know what I mean? And uh, I had I had a lot of support, a lot of support. It was that was truly an ensemble. I want to play another great Omar scene from The Wire. So Omar and 
his boyfriend Brandon are on they're part of this stick up crew and they're about to go meet up with uh, another dude called Bailey who's in the crew in this scene. This is from the fifth episode of the first season. And they're packing up guns. And there is a, there's a little bit of profanity in this that we will bleep for the radio, but um, uh, just, you know, be prepared, America. Ain't like him to be late. Billy, a dope fiend. I'm telling you. People ain't to be relied on. You hey, always got to talk like that, man. What? F this and F that. I give it up. I lose half of what I mean to say. Don't nobody want to hear them dirty words, man. Especially coming from such a beautiful mouth. Wait for belly. Early bird catch the worm, dog. <laughs> I I heard that that kiss wasn't in the script. No, no, it was not. <laughs> yeah, um, there was a lot of newness on on the set of the wire. You know, a lot of you know first timers like myself, and you know it was just so many characters and personalities and storylines to manage. You know, on a new show with minimal, you know, we had minimal dollars. They didn't roll out the red carpet for us over there in Baltimore on the wire. So we had to make do and and, and there was no room for error. You know, but so we kept the directors that were coming, we'd keep things kind of like, you know, just, you know, trying to just get through it, man. Because it was so much to manage. And I was like, you know, I forget which episode I had to say, wait a minute. I said... Okay, now I signed up to play a gay character, right? I know that I'm not, I don't have to act feminine. I said, but, you know, don't, I, I think it should be some more happening here. It should be like, we do, we do, doing a real show here, right? So we got to keep it popping. So I went to my um my co my co star at the time, uh, Michael. His name is also Michael, who played Brandon. And I was like, yo, Mike, we, I said, I think we, we got to step it up, man. I said, all they got us doing is holding hands and rubbing lips and playing in your hair. I said, I said, we got to like, you know, saying, bring it. I said, you know what I mean? He says, what do you suggest we do? I said, yo, I think we should lock lips in this month, in this scene right here. He said, what? It's not this. I said, I know. I said, but I think we, you know, it'll really be, it feels right in this scene right now. He said, all right, when you going to do it? And I started to tell him, he said, don't tell me. Cause I might freeze up when when, it, when it's coming. Just 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 pulling for it. Just, just go for it. I said, I right, I got you. Right. Clark Johnson was directing this particular episode, so he called us in for rehearsal. You know, he's like, yeah, yeah, run the lines, and he was still doing some, giving some direction, doing something with the lighting or with the camera, whatever. And he heard the kiss, turned around, looked at us. He said, whoa, whoa, stop the work. Said, run that scene again. Did it? Kissed again. He's like, he looked at me. He looked at read the script. He said, you'll put that in there? I said, yeah, we put that in there. Nodded his head. He said, brave. <laughs> and I know from that point on, <laughs> they started calling They started calling uh, Michael K. Williams to the set no more. <laughs> you know what I mean? It kind of stepped, it kind of set, you know, I set the tone, kind of, you know, set it up. You know, there are, there are a few characters that people are more fascinated by or identify with more on The Wire. And there are not a lot of shows... There's still not a lot of shows that 
treat the kind of situations and people that are on the wire with the respect that the wire did. And I think it really was, you know, it was really resonant for a lot of people for that reason. So your character was the the baddest of the bad on this show and also really sweet and, you know, touching character and was also gay. And, you know, you, you were, you know, you were dancing to house music in 1988. I imagine that you were reasonably comfortable with the idea of there being lots of different kinds of gay guys. But when you were just walking home in Brooklyn or something and somebody came up to you and said, oh man, are you Omar? Um, it must have been a trip to connect with people who who you were meeting that maybe didn't have that experience or didn't weren't comfortable having that experience for them to feel like they got to know Omar and that you get to have that exchange with them and almost be an ambassador. You know what I mean? Wow, ambassador. That's a, that's ambassador. That's a strong word, but um, you know, I, I definitely you know um. I've been approached a few times and, and, and with them um, with, with warm words about breaking a certain stereotype of black gay men in, in Hollywood or just gay men period in Hollywood always being one way, which was um, feminine, you know, and, you know, or out or, you know, so obvious, whereas that's not the entire gay community. I, yeah. I got approached a few times and like, got nodded, like, you know, good looking, you know, good, good portrayal of the character, you know, but um, I would say, my proudest moment of having anything to do with anything in that perspective was when um I heard from Jay-Z's camp that allegedly my portrayal of Omar had given him given him some sort of uh courage, if you will, to um come out publicly and speak for uh um uh marriage equality. You know what I mean? And I, I, I thought that, you know, he didn't have to he didn't have to put that out there. So I heard through his camp that um, you know, that was a uh, that was part of his decision, included in part of his decision making to just to come publicly with that, and uh, that humbled me a lot. Some of the characters who are criminals and killers on the wire are cold and sit comfortably under the heading of bad. A lot of them aren't, including Omar, who's a pretty murderous dude, but is immensely likable for many for many reasons and i wonder if you knew coming up in brooklyn people who were legit scary people who oh, got involved yeah. in bad stuff but yeah. who you also but who you also maybe liked no no i loved i have a you know vanderveer if anybody's from new york city of a certain age that ever heard of a little area in these flatbush called Vanderveer. There's there's a few bad boys in that area, you know, bad boy. You know, and um yeah, I can say were my my big brothers and comrades, which is who I pulled on to bring reality to or, or it, that that energy when Omar had to go menacing, I pulled from my relationships with these men growing up. But the hardest thing for me to do was to um how do I digest that and make it real for me? Because um, I had a certain, um, if any, if because those same men who, I'm, who I speak of now from my from my neighborhood, they also knew how I knew who they were. They knew who I was, and everybody who grew up with me knew knew that Mike was so not that dude. 
you know? And so I had to find a way to make that believable coming from my vehicle. And for me, it was not the alpha male way to go. That was not what that wasn't gonna work for my for my vehicle. It was um it was his vulnerability. Like, you know, it's the dude that gets quiet and kind of like just gets real like goes in. That's the one you need to be scared of because they'll 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 put that gun in your mouth while you're running it. You know, you know what I mean? And pull the trigger and be done, you know, and never say a word. So that type of uh, host- hostility and danger, it comes from a place of vulnerability, I believe. You know, it's when you when you hurt someone to the point that's sensitive, you know, and they da- and they could be dangerous. You you got a very you could it could potentially very bad problem, and so that's why I that's why I played Omar from because I could identify with his um sensitiveness and in his vulnerability. You know, that's what I have in common with him. And I just took it a step further because I know what it is to be angry enough to want to do malice to someone, but I don't act on it. Whereas in Omar, I got to I got to go all the way there. And then you mix it with what I what I've seen, how dudes get who really get it in, how they go, and you mix the two together, it became believable for me. And I believe that's what resonated with the audience. The fact the fact that I didn't try to be I I didn't want Omar to be a chess beater. You know, he was the guy's like, I I see you. That's how you rolling. That's how you feel. I okay, man. A few words, actions. You know. In a way, he's also a dude who. You know his his place in that world is so clear, and he and everyone else knows his rules. And it seems to me like a lot of people that I meet that um, got out of tough situations. A lot of times it was about that world kind of getting this understanding, you know, everyone around them getting this understanding, oh, he's this type of guy, you know? Yeah, I believe you're you're referring to one of his most famous quotes, which is, um, man's got to have a code, you know, which is, I think, what, I think what you're speaking to right now is primarily what, um, what the, what warranted the attention of the president, um, for, and, and drew, and drew, President President Obama into him was that that character trait what you speak of right there because um in reality that's a rare it's a rare find to um meet people who are transparent and who live who have their set of rules that you may or may not agree with but you can set your clock by it that, that you know there's certain things that a person won't do because of how they roll and a person will do because of how they roll. You may not like it on either way, but you can set your watch by it, and that's what the code is about. That's what a man, man with a code, man must have a code is about. And I think that's what warranted the attention of um, President Obama. Not that he was agreeing with Omar's lifestyle, but he he respected the fact that he was a man that you can set your watch by, and, and so to speak. It would be pretty funny if President Obama was agreeing with his lifestyle. He's like, well, you know, I mean, I've really enjoyed being president these past eight years. I think I'm going to be, become a stick-up kid. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, nah. I think, he, I think he's past his days of having to do that. But, um, you know, I, I did applaud him for having, you know, the if I will, as president of the United States who publicly come out at that time and say, you know, as or as a candidate, I think it was a candidate when he when he first um, spoke publicly about publicly about the wire. I th- I thought that took a lot of courage for that time. You know, with what he represented at the time, definitely for me, it made me that 
think that I could trust him. If anyone that is on that level of a platform who doesn't need, who didn't need the wires um, endorsement or anything like that, because he had the, he had the black community in spades, so he didn't need to mention anything like that. But the fact that he did it for me, it let me know that he got his eye on what is going on in the community and really cared about it. Because you know, no one was really talking on that platform, on that level about the wire like that, you know, publicly saying they like my character and for the reasons why he said it, you know, um, I thought that was very brave of him and it made me have a lot of respect and admiration for him and want to get behind him. We'll wrap up with Michael K. Williams in a minute. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Odoo. Is your old software making it impossible to keep up with demand? then it's time to switch to Odoo. Odoo is a suite of business applications designed to streamline, automate, and simplify any company. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, inventory, manufacturing, sales, accounting, you name it, Odoo's got you covered. So stop wasting time and start getting stuff done with Odoo. For a free trial, go to odoo.com slash bullseye. We have wasted this world. Our magic put a storm in the sky that has rendered the surface of our planet uninhabitable. But beneath the surface, well, that's another story entirely. In a city built leagues below the apocalypse, survivors of the storm forge paths through a strange new world. Some seek salvation for their homeland above. Others seek to chart the vast undersea expanse outside the city's walls. And others still seek what else? fortune and glory dive into the ether sea the latest campaign from the adventure zone every other thursday on maximumfun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts welcome back to bullseye i'm jesse thorne we're remembering the life and work of the actor michael k williams who died earlier this month at 54 i interviewed him in 2016 let's hear the rest of our conversation I, I want to play a clip from Happen Leonard, which is my guest, Michael K. Williams' new show on Sundance. It's about these two best friends who are like not exactly detectives, but just kind of stuff happens around them. Michael plays a guy named Leonard. Uh, his best friend is named Hap. He's played by James Purefoy. And they kind of get involved in this scheme uh, run by Hap's ex-wife, who's played by Christina Hendricks. And she comes and sort of seduces Hap and convinces them that they should go try and find this underwater car that maybe has a million dollars in it that's by an old bridge. And Leonard doesn't trust her. And he's just a bit iffy about the whole thing. And in this scene, he's agreed to do it. And they're loading up their car uh, or their truck, actually, um, to head out there. So let's take a lesson. Who does your cross to Bill? We don't know this house from nothing. No, he's a hippie idealist. He's going to take that money from a big, bad capitalist bank and give it to a good cause. What cause? Save the seals, save the whales. I didn't ask him. I get any money out of this. The only cause I'm going to give it to is me. Seals ain't got no bills to pay. How close is this Howard intruder anyway? I don't know. I don't care. I told you. 
just getting laid. That's all. Boy, you keep telling yourself that. I don't know how I let you talk me into these things. No. Rumor has it something to do with my perk. Christ, perk. Oh. I only said that to annoy Trudy. You been alive, annoys Trudy. <laughs> <laughs> I, the two of you are so wonderful together and you know it's sort of the premise of the whole show in a way it's like uh in a way it's like a sitcom not in that it's full of jokes although it does have some jokes in it in that it is just super driven by this character relationship yeah yeah you know um that 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 was very it's, it, it feels so real because it is you know um as you may or may not know James Pierrefort and I have known each other since um what two thousand eight. We were together uh, working on a project in um in Cape Town, South Africa back then uh, for like seven eight months. So uh um you know we developed a friendship, man. Kept in contact over the years, and so and we talked like that. Me, him, and his wife, man. We get together. It's just like anything goes, you know what I mean? And you know we just it's like family. So. There was no, there was not a better fit for for the role of Hap, and with me as Leonard than James. I, I can't think of another person. We're just about out of time, Michael. But I want to ask you about one, uh, slightly frivolous thing. So you and a couple of your co-stars from The Wire are in uh, one of my favorite music videos for one of my favorite songs ever, which is "What We Do" by Freeway. You know, dude, you you uh you are just you got you you're shocking me today. You just keep coming with these like little uh, who are you, dude? You all over the place. I got a lot of respect for you, man. That's that's dope. Well, Michael, yeah. you're the you're the one who just like who was just like, yeah, you know, when I when I decided to get serious about show business, I was just in my apartment drinking beer, uh maybe smoking a little weed and playing dominoes with Sean Price. Sean Price. <laughs> <laughs> just drop that in there. <laughs> I had to, man. That was my. Do you know I had to drive him to his gigs back in the day? When he had gigs around New York, I would take him to his shows, man. That, that dude was special. But um, um, yeah. It, it, well, even though what we do is wrong, you know, and um, us a little. Not to be in on a solemn note, but um, that day, if you notice in that video, I'm only in the last couple of shots towards like in the staircase and toward the end, and um, that was because uh, um, that was. I went straight from the, 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 the burial ground. I buried my aunt, my mother's uh, sister, who was like a grandmother to me. Um, I buried her that day, and that's why you don't see me in the earlier part of that video. So I left. I went straight from the graveyard. I changed my clothes, and I ran. Cause I just wanted to just, you know, throw that in and you know, kind of switch up the, the scene for that day. And I went to the set, man. I took my two sons with me, man, and we went out there, and them dudes, my two boys, I was so proud of them. They they they, they shook everybody down. Jay-Z. <laughs> Of everybody, freeway, beanie. I said, "Get him, get him, son." My dudes came out of the trailer with like like fifty dollars a piece. <laughs> when that song came out, I, I was a fan of The Wire, and um, seeing that video, you know, on like on one hundred six in Park or something like that, it was like, oh man, other people watch The Wire. <laughs> this whole time I thought it was just me but it turns out it's me and maybe Jay-Z and Freeway and Beanie Siegel yeah Yeah, I'll never forget the first time um, I realized that someone else was people were actually watching this show Uh, I was going in the city to meet a friend of mine 
and I had the radio on at Hot 97, and um, you know, it was Friday mix, you no know, hip hop, and uh, uh, what's what's the one um the dudes from the um G Unit camp? I think it was a uh, uh, Yayo Tony Yayo. He was spitting live on the radio, and the dude said, um, "I jump out the car with the Ruger on fire, something, something, something like Omar on the wire." When I tell you, I heard that. I almost crashed on the Brooklyn Bridge. I was like, yo, yo. <laughs> Man, oh, yeah. I was like, okay, I guess, I guess people are watching. Yeah. Well, Michael K. Williams, I sure appreciate you uh, coming on Bullseye. You're, you're welcome here at any time. It was just a pleasure. Thank you, man. Enjoy your weekend. I'm so great. Thank you so much for doing this. It was just a, just a dream to have you on the show. Caught me off guard with that Kim Sim shit. I'm gonna pay for. I'm losing. I'm gonna lose some cool points on it on the Instagram for that one. I know it. <laughs> All right, man. Cheers. Thanks, man. Peace. Michael K. Williams from 2016. Getting to talk to him and our conversation was a highlight of my career, and I'm grateful for his life and work. If you or someone you know is suffering from addiction, you can get referrals to local treatment centers and other support services by calling Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services National Helpline. Their number is 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-HELP. 1-800-662-4357. It's free and available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. If you're experiencing a crisis of any kind and just need to talk to somebody, you can text the number 741-741 to reach a crisis counselor. Again, that's 741-741, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, completely free. There is help available and it's never too late. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producer is Jesus Ambrosio. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffett. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label Memphis Industries for sharing it with us. You can keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews there. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. 